0: This is a story of a tragedy on top of a tragedy.
1: 1.25 this morning here in Atlanta at Centennial Park, there was an explosive device. It does now appear that it was some kind of a crew.
0: A story of a hero turned villain.
1: The hero security guard who found the Olympic Park bomb in Atlanta now emerges as the of
0: the cities. And an investigation in search of a suspect.
2: The fact that two of the largest institutions in our country, the FBI and the media, make the mistake and essentially join forces to ruin his life, makes this an American tragedy.
0: I'm Virginia Prescott with an On Second Thought special, Mistaken, the real story of Richard Jewell. In the late 90s and early aughts, the name Richard Jewell became a newsroom watchword code for false accusations, and a warning against rushing to judgment when reporting on criminal investigations. The public humiliation of Jewel and his mother are at the center of Richard Jewell, a new movie from director Clint Eastwood.
3: All right, Richard, here's what we're going to do. We need a voice exemplar. I want you to say into this phone, there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes.
0: But as we know, Hollywood doesn't always get it right. Kevin Salwin and Kent Alexander were there, and they consulted with Eastwood. Salwin was editor for the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the 96 games. Kent Alexander was U.S. attorney for Northern Georgia at the time and worked with the FBI on the case. Together, they wrote the book The Suspect. It's a cautionary tale of ambitions outrunning humanity and begins in a city with a chip on its shoulder. Here's Kevin Salwin.
2: Well, Atlanta in 1987 was very much a striving city. It was a city of salesmen, as it was, it was often known. It was a city that uh, where the best restaurants were in strip malls. It was a city in which, um, from a sports perspective, it was known and actually called by Sports Illustrated as Loserville, USA.
0: The campaign to host the centennial anniversary of the Modern Games was a long shot. It began in 1987. Business and government leaders wanted the world to see Atlanta as a post-racial city and the capital of the New South.
2: For the city of Atlanta to be striving to get the Olympic Games was kind of, in many ways, a very absurd notion. For the last
1: four years and gotten behind it, as you heard Commissioner Lomax say early, it has been the spirit of the people that has made the difference. And I have to tell you, as we await the next hour, an hour that I think will be the most important
3: in the history of this city since General Sherman marched through here.
0: Kent Alexander says to win the Games, Olympic boosters wanted to show they were tough on crime.
3: Crime was a big problem in Atlanta. I was U.S. attorney at the time. We were known in some circles, the homicide capital of the world. In reality, the city was cleaning up pretty well. And particularly as the Olympics came, we cleaned up a lot more. And beyond the crime on the streets, there's the terrorism piece. Oklahoma City had occurred not long before. The uh, sarin gas tax in Japan had occurred. So we had to worry, we, I say law enforcement, about what to do about making sure that that did not happen in Atlanta.
1: And as far as what will happen, who knows. I will tell you this, regardless of the outcome, Atlanta has been a winner. They've been a winner in the presentation. They've been a winner in the way they've handled themselves. And this city is now an international city. There's no two ways about it.
4: The International Olympic Committee has awarded the 1996 Olympic Games to the city of Atlanta. (laughs)
3: Uh, winning the Olympics was entirely unexpected by a lot of people.
0: Ken Alexander says once the city won the games, there were a lot of raised eyebrows. What was Atlanta's plan?
3: In fact, somebody at the hotel in Japan when it was won said, "Okay, now the uh, the dog has caught the car. Now what?
0: Now what? Indeed." Atlanta at the time had 2,500 cops on the payroll and needed to amp up security fast for what was predicted to be the largest peacetime gathering in history, a massive and visible international event. So they brought in police from all over the state and beyond.
3: Federal law enforcement, we brought in a lot of FBI agents, DE agents, ATF agents, and the military. So ultimately there were about 30,000 security personnel in Atlanta specifically to secure the games.
0: Among those 30,000, Richard Jewell, hired a month before the games began. Kevin Sowen.
2: Well, Richard was very much a mixed bag. He was in many ways a terrific rural police officer. But Richard was often a little bit more zealous than people wanted him to be. When he was at the Habersham County Sheriff's Office, he would wreck vehicles.
0: And he would lose jobs. Jewel's lifelong dream of becoming a cop bordered on an obsession and was derailed by an arrest for impersonating an officer. Piedmont College let him go after he repeatedly pulled citizens over off campus.
2: And so he came to Atlanta as part of this security force, um, basically to resuscitate his career and to wait for the possibility of other police jobs to reopen because nobody was going to hire before the game. So
3: at the games, his assignment was to guard this one sound and light tower, but because he was a little overzealous, a little over the top, he treated the entire tower as his domain, and he was going to protect that entire tower, which was so unusual in the field of private security, but that was Richard Jewell.
0: It was a pretty uneventful job until the day it wasn't. Just after midnight on July 27th, something like 50,000 revelers were at a concert at Centennial Park, and Richard Jewell was making his rounds.
3: So he was going around and he came across a group of kids drinking, and they are shotgunning Bud's Budweiser's, and he took offense at that. He was trying to get them out of there, and they wouldn't leave. So he flagged down a GBI agent named Tom Davis to get him to get them out of there.
0: Unbeknownst to Jewell, at 12.58 a.m., an anonymous 911 call had come in, warning of a bomb in Centennial Park.
3: The package, the Alice pack, a military pack that held a bomb, was hidden under a bench right next to the tower. Richard Jewell's the one who
2: pointed to it after the kids left and said, that shouldn't be there. Richard runs up and down the tower to tell people, give people a pre-warning, Hey, there's a suspicious package. We may have a problem. So they called for help. Two bomb techs, one
3: from ATF, one from FBI, come in, wind their way through the crowd, crawl up, look at the package. They're not supposed to touch it, but one of them does open the lip of it. And Richard's watching them as the guy's got a pen light and the guy sees wires and pipes and suddenly realizes this is the real thing.
2: As soon as Richard realizes, yes, this is actually a bomb, he races back in the tower. It's literally pushing people down the stair to try to save their lives. So I, w-
3: I was at home at sleep, my friend Jim Green, who's watching CNN calls and says, "Hey, do you know about this?" They're carrying somebody away right here in front of the at and t Olympic Village. It's one twenty. There was a, we don't know where the... And so I got dressed immediately. I showered because I just had the sense I wouldn't be back home for a while. I drove straight to the FBI and then along with the head of the ATF, drove to the park. And by that point, everybody was evacuated. And the 111 victims, all out out of there, except that Alice Hawthorne, Mrs. Hawthorne's body, was still laying where it was, right in front of the Greek sculpture.
0: Alice Hawthorne was killed by the blast. A Turkish cameraman died from a heart attack covering the aftermath. Many of the injured were police and security officers who formed a perimeter around the bomb.
3: So I, I met Richard that morning and I went over to shake his hand and to thank him for what he did. I just remember shaking his hand and and he said, uh, sir, I was just doing my job.
0: Just doing my job. It's a line Jewell would often use in the days after the bombing. With the eyes of the world on Atlanta, the entire U.S. Justice Department kicked into high gear with one task in mind, finding the Centennial Park bomber. And that meant keeping a close eye on Richard Jewell, because you always look at the person who found the bomb.
2: So uh, Richard, for the first couple of days, was uh, doing two things primarily. Number one is he was doing interviews with... Law enforcement,
0: and he was talking to reporters.
2: He did a couple of CNN interviews. He did some newspaper interviews.
0: The reporters you'll talk to were part of a brand new media landscape just beginning to take shape.
2: 1996 is a fascinating year in media. And so CNN's already up and running, but Fox News Channel starts up that year. MSNBC starts up that year. You're connected to MSNBC. Several publications, major publications, go online for the first time. So the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Chicago Tribune, all go online for the first time in 96. And now all of a sudden, the pace of media, the pace of news starts to completely change. And with that, the pressures in newsroom completely ratchet up. The public's expectation for when they should receive information completely starts to shift.
0: And so the promise of a constant flow of news began to collide headlong into what was arguably the biggest news story in the world.
2: Well, the media was, as you would expect, attempting to figure out who did this and attempting to figure out where law enforcement is. Most of them had um, very little um, if you think about the fact, there were 15,000 journalists who were credentialed for the Olympic Games. So this was, there was a swarm of media at all places. Most of them were sports reporters. And most of them had no, had no experience in law enforcement, no sourcing in law enforcement. But one person in particular did.
0: Her name? Kathy Scruggs, a crime reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
2: She was, um, she's sexy, she's profane, she's a heavy drinker, a heavy smoker, she keeps a gun in her purse, you know, and, um, and loved to go to local haunts like Manuel's Tavern and hang out there with the homicide cops. But the cops loved her because she was actually a terrific reporter. Kathy was in many ways a throwback from the 1930s newspaper wars.
0: But this was 1996. In the 1930s, stories couldn't cross the world in the blink of an eye.
2: And Kathy said, one of her mottos was, we're not in the business of being last. And then on the Tuesday
0: morning, three days after Richard Jewell found the bomb in Centennial Park,
2: he does this interview with uh, Katie Couric on the Today Show. And Katie Couric is, you know, America's sweetheart. This is a big deal. And so he's, he's transported down there by limo. Katie Couric tells him how um, he's a hero, He really gives him a hero's welcome. What he doesn't know is that when he gets back in the limo on the way home, that the FBI is following him home.
0: By now, Jewell was the FBI's lead suspect in the case. His former employers at Habisham County and Piedmont College had seen him on TV and called the FBI tip line, warning that something was off with Richard Jewell, suggesting he was a wannabe cop, the type of guy to plant a bomb and then save people from the same bomb. A Los Angeles cop confessed to a similar ploy at the 84 Olympics. And at the same time, forensic psychologists at FBI headquarters had decided that sort of person who would plant a bomb, only to play hero, looked a lot like Richard Jewell.
3: The parallel track to that was the behavioral science unit. They had taken a look at the interviews with CNN and crafted a Profile of the potential bomber. And it was part interview advice, how to interview Richard Jewell, and it was part saying, though this isn't a science, it's subjective, and all that, part of it was very much, this is your guy, he did it.
0: Coming up...
1: The security guard, and this is a quote from the Atlanta Journal, who first alerted police to the pipe bomb that exploded in Centennial Olympic Park is the focus of the federal investigation.
0: How Richard Jewell's name was leaked, changing his life forever. I'm Virginia Prescott. Mistaken, the real story of Richard Jewell. A special broadcast of On Second Thought continues after a short break. This is GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott with On Second Thought. Today, Mistaken, the real story of Richard Jewell. We're learning new details about the security guard who for 88 days was the chief suspect in the Centennial Park bombing during the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. Just before the break, we learned that FBI behavioral scientists speculated that Richard Jewell fit the profile of the kind of bomber they were looking for. Someone who would plant a bomb to play the hero. FBI agents fanned out to interview Jewel's former colleagues, who reinforced their suspicions and turned the agency's focus on Jules. And that was what got leaked to the one reporter on the ground who had the drive and old school Moxie to take it and run with it, Kathy Scruggs of the AJC. She has since passed away, but her editor, Bert Roten, recently talked about it publicly for the first time in 23 years. And I won't comment on her sources,
4: I won't even acknowledge that there was an FBI source if there was one. But but she got this tip and then she sought to verify it. And she met with somebody who had very deep first-hand knowledge of the FBI, including an internal document that had profiled Richard Jewell as the bomber and explained why, why in this document, why he was seen as the bomber. and went through quite a bit of detail with her on, on uh, why the FBI suspected him.
0: Scruggs took a day to get someone in law enforcement to corroborate the story and now had a scoop that could pass muster with her editors. She and colleague Ron Martz typed up the story, and still there was a lot of debate in the newsroom.
4: Um, I, will, I will admit that at the time, I, I was a little reluctant to, to name him. I went to our managing editor and I said I said, well, do we name him? And then he repeated back to me that um, we had the story. There's no question that it was accurate at that point. It, it, had, passed, it had passed the journalistic uh, test to be an, an accurate portrayal of reality.
0: And as Kathy Scruggs liked to say, the AJC wasn't in the business of being last. FBI has a suspect. Read all.
3: About-
0: The story ran in a special afternoon edition of the AJC on Tuesday, July 30th, headlined, FBI suspects hero guard may have planted bomb.
4: I I don't believe that there is a red-blooded American journalist who, in that same set of circumstances, wouldn't have gone ahead and published the story.
0: The editors ran it over to CNN, where Tom Johnson was head of news. And like the AJC, Johnson's newsroom had a decision to make.
1: Yes, it was talked over. Uh, yes, there was a, a period there when uh, we thought that naming him uh, as the suspect uh, was, was wrong. I mean, the old tradition has been you need to have at least two sources or more.
0: Johnson checked the jewel story with his FBI source who told him he's the guy. Plus, Johnson trusted the AJC.
1: We've been asked to relay the story to you verbatim, which we'll do...
0: So, CNN ran with the story.
1: The security guard, and this is a quote from the Atlanta Journal, who first alerted police to the pipe bomb that exploded...
0: On air, around the world, word for word. The FBI knew they had to get to Juul before the news did. So agents tricked him into an interrogation under the guise of filming an instructional video for first responders... When they finally read Jewel, his Miranda rights at the end of the interview.
2: He knows this is no longer a training video. And you just watch his face. We've seen the video of that. And you just watch his face just completely drop. Um It's, it's, it's a shocking moment for him. And yet, you know, Richard is certain that he is not involved in this. And so he you know, decides to go on with the interview, even though he cannot at that point reach his attorney. Now the story goes from being a local story to being an international story. And at that moment, Richard Jewell's life will change forever.
0: And the thousands of reporters at the Olympics, they go with the story too. Think retweeting decades before social media was even a thing.
2: They repeat the stories or they amplify the stories in a way that's remarkably damaging.
0: So cameras are there when FBI agents cart boxes out of the Buford Highway apartment Richard shared with his mother, Bobby.
2: Mr. Jewell
4: has been fully cooperative and permitted the agents to enter the apartment and conduct the court authorized
2: Richard search. Jewell's life starts to become this cloistered, incredibly claustrophobic experience inside his mother's apartment.
0: It's a nine-hour search. They strip the place, mortifying Bobby as they rifle through her lingerie and haul off her Tupperware collection.
1: This is Jewel. How's your son holding up?
2: He's watching television, and every channel has him as the lead suspect.
0: Richard Jewell becomes the punchline of jokes. Jay Leno calls him the Unabubba. The New York Post labels him a Village Rambo. A fat, failed, wannabe cop who lives with his mother and can't hold down a job.
2: So in the court of public opinion, Richard Jewell is absolutely tried and convicted.
0: Meanwhile, law enforcement was still trying to build a case.
2: Evidence is present. This search
4: is part of an ongoing investigative process and does not indicate in any way that Mr. Jewell has been charged with a crime under our system of justice.
0: The head of FBI himself, Louis Free, was personally overseeing the case, a level of oversight Kent Alexander had never seen.
3: Absolutely unheard of. But in this case, when you're the director of the FBI and you've had things like Waco go horribly wrong, you've had Oklahoma City, you want to make sure that things go right.
0: Jules' newly assembled legal team begins making the rounds on the talk show circuit. They stage a press conference at the site of the payphone, where the bomb scare was called in at 12.58 a.m., blocks away from Centennial Park, where Jewel found the knapsack, at 12.57. The tactic worked, planting seeds of doubt in the minds of the public, and investigators were losing conviction, too.
3: In a matter of weeks, a week or so into it, the more we reviewed, and we're talking hundreds of reports, the more it became apparent that there was as much showing that Richard Jewell did not do it as he did. So it was a matter of just looking through it through an objective prism. And as time went on, it became clearer and clearer that it, it just didn't look like he was the bomber.
1: Now, three weeks later, without sufficient evidence to charge him, Richard Jewell remains under the
3: watchful eye of the media. Richard Jewell's attorneys put his mother, Bobby, in front of the media to plead with President Clinton on behalf of her son. So they arranged this news conference with lots of cameras pointed directly at Bobby. They'd reviewed with Bobby Jewell her statement time and again, again and again and again. She never was able to make it all the way through that statement without breaking down. On the very last run, the one that counted, she actually made it through the statement and then just broke down in tears completely. And it was a moment that resonated, I think, with the media, with the public, and even with law enforcement behind closed doors. It was hard not to take note of that and realize the toll that this has taken on Richard Jewell and his mom.
0: And so, nearly three months after the AJC published the story, Kent Alexander decided to set the record straight.
3: It was time, we thought to make an unusual statement, a public statement about somebody's status at the Justice Department. Normally, if somebody's under investigation, you never talk about it. I wrote this letter. It's called a non-target letter. Technically, it just says you're not a target of the investigation, but the media took that as a full clearance, which was great. That was the hope. When it became clear that there was nothing forthcoming on Richard Jewell, the media started turning on its own.
0: And some government officials turned on the media.
3: But if anyone... Is
1: justified in being bitter and angry. It is you, sir.
0: Here's North Carolina Republican House member Howard Coble in a congressional hearing about the FBI's conduct on the Jewell case.
1: Because you were recklessly yanked around and yanked around and from pillar to post, but I think we're all embarrassed about it. And I don't know how, how, you, how we make what sort of redress we give you.
0: And Richard Jewell had his say.
5: Not only did the FBI accuse the wrong man, its agents in Atlanta and officials in Washington actively participated in publicly humiliating me and privately violating my constitutional rights. The media followed the FBI's lead.
0: Kathy Scruggs was crushed by the fallout from the story she'd so doggedly reported. Already suffering from a number of health problems, she died from an apparent drug overdose at the age of 42 in 2001. If she'd survived, she might well have served jail time for refusing to give up her FBI source, the one who first told her Jewel was indeed a suspect. Scruggs never saw the apprehension of the real Centennial Park bomber, Eric Robert Rudolph. He detonated three more bombs, two in Atlanta and one at an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama, and avoided capture, hiding out in the mountains of North Carolina for five years. Today he spends most of his time alone in a concrete cell in a supermax prison. Richard Jewell went on to work as a police officer in Luthersville, Georgia. He even got married. And he died in 2006, five years after Scruggs, from complications from heart disease and diabetes. He was 44. 23 years later, some point to Jules' experience as an early example of fake news, a media conspiracy to distort facts driven by a political agenda or to gin up ratings and click-throughs. Kent Alexander disagrees.
3: This is anything but fake news. I just don't understand that concept when it comes to this story. This is very real news. This is a real bomb, a real person. What happened to him happened. The story was true. It's more a question of how the media
2: reports the news, but it's just simply not a fake news story. Kevin Selwyn. And you can easily say mistakes were made by the FBI. Mistakes were made by the media. Um, and you, could, you can find evidence for some of that. Were there honest people trying to do honest things? Absolutely.
0: Alexander and Salwin found the initial reporting on Jewell was accurate. But Bert Roten, that reluctant editor at the Journal-Constitution in 1996, says even when reporters uncover facts, sharing them can be needlessly destructive.
4: The fact that you don't commit libel is a very low standard for a, for a newspaper.
0: And, Rotten says, not much of a defense for what his paper did to Richard Jewell.
4: And the way that we thought about that story and the consequences from it informed me as a journalist and editor the rest of my life. I mean, I, I don't think a day went by when I walked in the HAC when I didn't think about that. And, to, I mean, we lose, we lose touch with the fact that we're writing about people. You you do forget about that. You become focused on trying to tell the best story you can.
0: NBC, The New York Post, and CNN were sued by Jewell and settled. The AJC fought the suit all the way to the Georgia Supreme Court, finally prevailing in 2012. Tom Johnson, now retired president of CNN News, says if the pace of media in 1996 was dangerously fast for something as basic as human dignity... That pace has nothing on the speed of 21st-century online news and social media.
1: I am very troubled by where we are today and perhaps even where we're headed. At this point, virtually anybody can get onto Facebook or get onto any other social media and pump out information that is that is false, that is harmful. I mean, it really is so damaging. I especially hope that... That young people will make the distinction between what is uh, sort of available to them and yet what is truthful. And if I knew what to do, I'd be back in the business full time.
0: As it stands, Johnson has to live with the world he had a hand in building.
1: The mistake we made is something that I will take with me to my grave.
0: The AJC assigned a reporter to do a thorough investigation of the paper's role in turning the spotlight on Jewel. That piece never ran for fear of playing into the lawsuit. The FBI did its own review and decided the agency bore no responsibility for protecting the privacy of suspects. But the following year, Attorney General Janet Reno took the unusual step of publicly apologizing to Jewel. And how about the public? That gobbled it up. The hunger for instant news, whether accurate or not, clearly didn't end when we learned Jewel was innocent. And so, 23 years later, what should we do? As we flick through self-curated news feeds, how much do we care about sorting fact from fiction? Kent Alexander and Kevin Sowin believe we owe Richard Jewell more than our regrets. After all, he saved lives in 1996.
3: I think what he did was amazing, and I hope he goes down as a hero. What happened to him was tragic, but he's just was somebody you can't make up. He's
2: he's the person who really saved the Olympic Games in a lot of ways. And Richard Jewell is, the, is a, the person who should have a statue of him in Atlanta.
0: There is no statue yet, but Centennial Olympic Park officials say they plan to place a marker honoring the man who was never arrested, never charged, but who proved more valuable as a suspect than a hero.
6: You know my name, <clears throat> but you do not really know who I am. My name is
5: Richard Jewell.
0: Mistaken was produced by Grant Blankenship, Priya Mahadevan, and me, Virginia Prescott. Additional help from Allison Hashimoto and Sean Powers. Editing, mixing, and original music by Jesse Neiswanger. Executive producer, Mary Lynn Ryan. Audio used by permission from the Atlanta History Center and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Additional audio from CNN, NBC News, ESPN, The Associated Press, and ABC News. Special thanks to GPB's Mark Bradway, and to Tom Johnson, Burt Roten, and to Kent Alexander. and Kevin Salwin. You can find an extended interview with Kevin and Kent and more on their book, The Suspect, along with some articles, images, and streaming and podcast versions of this broadcast, all at gpb.org slash Richard Jewell. This is GPB. We are back with On Second Thought from GPBM, Virginia Prescott. We just listened to Mistaken, our special broadcast about Richard Jewell. If you didn't hear it, or you can stream it or download it at gpb.org slash Richard Jewell. Well, now for some real-time follow-up on the media storm set off by the new Clint Eastwood movie, Richard Jewell. As we heard, Richard Jewell's legal team sued the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, along with other news organizations, for defamation. The AJC fought the suit and eventually won. Well, now the paper is disputing how it is portrayed in the film, which hits theaters today. In a letter to Warner Brothers and the filmmakers, attorneys claim the movie depicts the AJC in a, quote, false and defamatory manner, close quote, and wrongly portrays reporter Kathy Scruggs trading sex for information from an FBI agent. The depiction of Scruggs in particular has kicked up a whole lot of dust in the media sphere, and opinions on Eastwood's movie have taken on a partisan cast. William E. Lee is with us from WUGA in Athens to talk about it. He's professor of journalism at the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. William Lee, welcome. Thank you. Good All to right. Be here. Professor. Michael Cheney is also with us. He's professor of film and television at the Savannah College of Art and Design. Joining us from our Savannah Bu- Bureau, Michael, thank you for being here.
6: Good morning, and thank you for having
0: me. All right, so let's dig into this. So William, the AJC filed an official complaint about falsified aspects of the film addressed to Clint Eastwood, the screenwriter, Billy Ray, and the studio Warner Brothers. What are some of the key objections there?
5: Well, first of all, let me offer a correction. They haven't filed anything in court. This is what's known as a demand letter. And uh, it was written by a lawyer in Hollywood uh, named Martin uh, Singer? Singer. And he is described by Variety magazine as Hollywood's number one legal attack dog. Hmm. And his business consists largely of representing Hollywood celebrities and especially threatening uh, tabloids in particular for uh, potentially defamatory stories. And so to put this letter in context, again, it's not uh, the initiation of a lawsuit. It's the threat of uh, initiation of a lawsuit unless certain things uh, occur, particularly a disclaimer. And I'll get into that in just a bit. But I, I, I want to put this letter in, pers- in perspective. The most prominent protagonist of the most prominent uh, user of these demand letters is President Trump. Long before he became a candidate in public office, he spent uh, years having his lawyers send demand letters. When he became a candidate, in particular close to the 2016 election, the New York Times published a story uh, about two women's allegations that he was inappropriate with them. His lawyers since Professor Lee, I'm
0: sorry, can yeah. I can I, I, I understand that uh, I would say that President Trump is not the only person certainly to use these kind of letters, but I don't want to lose the thread of what we're talking about and turn this into a conversation about President Trump. If that's OK, if we can stick to talking about this disclaimer, if you don't mind, there is already a disclaimer on the film. What is the AJC asking for the filmmakers to add to that?
5: Well, that's, that's what's really uh, uh, confusing because in the letter, they, um, Martin Singer basically says, we demand you immediately issue a statement publicly acknowledging that some events were imagined for dramatic purposes, an artistic license and dramatization were used in the film's portrayal events. We further demand you add a prominent disclaimer to the film to the effect. Well, Warner Brothers came back and said, uh, we've already got that, and in fact, the disclaimer on the film says the following the film is based on <clears throat> excuse me actual historical events dialogue and certain events and characters contained in the film are created for the purposes of dramatization uh i'm not seeing a whole lot different between what's currently on the film and what um uh mr singer wants uh warner brothers to do
0: uh-huh so there's a hint there that this is something that i've seen a lot on twitter that this is not necessarily a Um, even if it's just the hint of a lawsuit at this point, a winnable case. So this is being done maybe for other purposes.
5: Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's an effort to try and perhaps uh, move the public dialogue and uh, present the AJC in a uh, positive light. Uh, Unfortunately, I think these demand letters – usually don't present the uh, person making the man in a positive light, it makes him look like a bully.
0: Hmm, Right. All right. So let's look at this a little bit more about the film. Michael, the trailer for the film features an FBI agent directing Jewel to give a voice exemplar and Jewel doing it. You know, there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. In real life, Jewel's legal team forbade him from doing that. Now, we have in the text of the trailer the words, based on true events, and later the world will know his name and the truth. So, Michael, for the purposes of filmmaking based on, does that clear the movie to create its own (laughs) storyline?
6: Well, here's the thing. I'm not a lawyer. I'm an artist and I'm an educator. And I do try to teach my students how to become better artists. And there is a certain degree of ethics involved with that. At the same time, there's also a certain degree of latitude in the arts. But creative latitude and creative freedom only extends so far. There's a huge difference between based on a true story and is a true story. I mean, dramatic films are not journalism, even if they're based on true events. They can be inspired by actual events. But movies have an objective of telling an engaging and entertaining story.
0: Right. So, but even for people who haven't seen the movie, some specific scenes have been called out, including a bar scene at Manuel's Tavern, where uh, Kathy Scruggs like to hang out. Pretty direct implication that Scruggs traded sex for information from this FBI agent. Eastwood and screenwriter Billy Ray say they sourced the material from Marie Brenner's 1997 article in Vanity Fair and from Kevin Salwyn and Kent Alexander's book, The Suspect. They consulted with the filmmakers. But nothing in either suggests that's true. So what's your read of the portrayal? Well, I think if Kathy
6: Scruggs is depicted as offering sex in exchange for information about the case from an FBI agent where there's no evidence to suggest that this actually happened in reality, then there's a real problem. You know, particularly since the character is actually named Kathy Scruggs. Uh, there's a certain degree of f- fictionalization with any historical character in a movie. That's just the nature of the medium. But when that characterization becomes defamatory or damaging and doesn't reflect the character of the actual person, then there's a problem. Um, had the character not been clearly based on an actual person or there was a, you know, Kathy Scruggs was not named Kathy Scruggs. There was just a kind of composite character. There would still be other issues, namely this issue of the kind of, uh, trope of unethical female reporter that we've seen emerging in films of the last 40 or so years
0: right i'm thinking of house of cards sharp objects exactly right earlier this week at the. if i could add something here
5: um it's not defamatory and here's why she's dead and central principle of defamation law is that the dead have no legal recourse their estates cannot sue for uh defamation so Clint Eastwood and his screenwriter have complete latitude to make her into whatever they like, as long as they don't reference inappropriately a living person. Huh. Now, that may sound callous, but that's the reality. And so part of this demand letter, which uh, the only person who's actually identified in the demand letter is Kathy Scruggs, is is really, um, you know, just smoke and mirrors because th- – her estate would have no standing whatsoever to claim that this portrayal is false. Now, is it ethical to do that? That's an entirely different question. But sure, and I'll,
6: and, and thank you for clarifying that. I think if if Kathy Scruggs, you know, was a real person. And she has a real legacy. She has a very real reputation. And if that character depicts uh, unethical actions on screen and the audience is apt to believe that the actual person acted in this way, well, maybe it's not defamatory, but it's certainly uncool.
0: And how about the claim that you you will get the story? We will know the truth. So it's claiming truth. Is is there latitude with that, William, if we're talking about a, a screenplay or a tag on a film trailer?
5: absolutely Um, clint eastwood is not ken burns and this is an entertainment film and i don't think a reasonable viewer would go to this expecting it to be um, an accurate portrayal of everything that was said and everything that was done if you watch the crown and think that queen elizabeth actually said those words to (laughs) prince philip then i've got an easter uh, bunny and a tooth fairy to introduce you to
0: Okay, so let's say that some of the response to this uh, on Twitter so far uh, that people are saying about the film and whether or not it's necessary to depict her in that light. We've got people saying, I'm sorry, let me just scroll through and find some of these reactions here. We have uh, Mike says only the media will conspire to ruin a man's life very publicly and then loudly complain about how they're viewed in the movie about ruining an innocent man's life. Um, also, in a country that is hostile towards women journalists and especially women who are journalists or who hold or pursue any powerful position, a film like Richard Jewell insinuating falsely that a woman journalist traded sex for tips is abhor- abhorrent and irresponsible. So what do you think there? Is is—is the fact that they're making headlines kind of cheating its own disclaimer, you know, that this has kicked up so much fury in the media?
6: It, it seems like it is to me. Mm-hmm. There seems to be an irony here. I mean, there's an underlying theme of false accusations with the film, and that seems to extend to what they're doing with the character of Kathy Scruggs. And that falls in line with this trend of depicting women reporters as slutty ambition monsters. Um, and that's a very real trope that we've, we've seen in films. And you've, you've named some of the films and television shows that have embraced that trope. Uh, you know, Clint Eastwood and Billy Ray are very talented filmmakers, um, and Eastwood has said that he doesn't know why Kathy, how Kathy Scruggs got the tip on Richard Jewell. So why did he go with this kind of tired and hackneyed and very problematic trope with the, the, the you know, uh, unethical female reporter?
0: Here it's he a, is. So I'll just uh, cut in and just we'll hear from Clint Eastwood. Here he is at an at a premiere in Atlanta this week.
2: Uh, Kathy Scruggs was uh, a very uh, interesting personality, and she did she did find the uh, answer to it. So how she did it, nobody probably will ever really know.
0: So he's you know so no apology there certainly. We do of course have different expectations in watching a film than reading a news article. But when a filmmaker claims responsibility, uh, or, or claims rather that legal. Even if there's no legal responsibility to abide by the facts, do you think there should be more of an ethical responsibility? And maybe I'll pose that to you, William, as the lawyer. Part of the AJC demand letter claims that the film intentionally misinterpreted the facts of the Richard Jewell story. How would a newspaper prove such a thing?
5: Well, see, this is the really fun part about this. And this demand letter is going nowhere. And here's why. Uh, the person who potentially has the most at stake in terms of reputation is dead and therefore has no legal standing. The AJC, if it wants to bring on a lawsuit uh, claiming that the portrayal of its uh, employees, etc., is is false, that's a heavy burden, and here's why. The AJC would be classified as a public figure, and in defamation law that means that the burden of proof is on them It really comes down to having to show that Clint Eastwood and his uh, screenwriter knew that they were lying about living people or a corporation or acted recklessly. Mm -hmm. And that means that they had serious doubt about the truthfulness of what they were publishing about, again, living people or a corporation. Now, I I really want to emphasize that defamation law in this country is structured by the Supreme Court is defendant friendly meaning it is protective of the press it is not plaintiff friendly so the AJC as a plaintiff would have a whole set of requirements to prove that would be extraordinarily difficult to do and the fun part of all this is that if you bring a lawsuit then you open yourself up to what's called discovery and that means the attorney attorneys for Warner Brothers would be able to depose key figures at the ajc and ask them questions about how this story was processed how it was verified etc conceivably even forcing the uh, newspaper to identify its uh, sources for these uh, stories about richard jewell Hmm. that's not something that you want to be doing okay and then you also open up the possibility since the demand letter is constantly referencing the professionalism of the newspaper You open up questions about behavior in the newsroom, relationships between editors and reporters, uh, things like uh, use of alcohol, drugs, etc., which would undercut the claim of professionalism. Most importantly, it's important for your uh, listeners to understand that there are no professional standards that have legal enforceability when it comes to the practice of journalism. Journalism is not like law or medicine where you can lose your license if you violate professional standards. There is no licensing of journalists. Consequently, there are no professional standards that, uh, again, could be pointed to in court and say, oh, you violated that, therefore you you uh, acted unprofessionally. Journalists vary wildly in their... Um, Assessment of what is appropriate and what's inappropriate. There are some codes out there, for example, by the uh, Society of Professional Journalists and they have have things in them that, for example, the AJC violated uh, in its uh, in its uh, Richard Jewell coverage.
0: I'm I'm sorry to cut you off, but we've got to close in just a minute. So I just want to leave the last to Michael. It, It seems that Richard Jewell's reputation ended up being a casualty of reporting in this case, whether or not, you know legally, but by the code. Would you argue, Michael, that the AJC's reputation here is simply a casualty of filmmaking?
6: That's a really interesting point. Um, you know, I I, th- I think my concern as an artist and an educator is more in line with the way that Kathy Scruggs is depicted. Uh, and again, I've got a Disclaimer here, I've not seen the film and I'm only familiar with the recent press coverage regarding the description of the representation of Kathy Scruggs on film. But there is still a kind of continuing problematic image of women reporters depicted on the screen. Uh, And that, I think, is what's really unfair about the fallout from this film.
0: I want to thank you both for spending some time with us. Thank you so much to Michael Cheney, professor of film and television from SCAD. Thank you.
6: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: And William Lee, a journalism professor at the University of Georgia, thank you so much for your time. Rock on. <laughs> on Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Devon, and Jake Troyer. Jesse nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan, executive producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us. Up next, NPR is going to bring you live coverage as the House Judiciary Committee votes on articles of impeachment introduced earlier this week. That's on GPB All Day. Again, you can go to gbb.org slash Richard if you want to pass around or listen to in full the mistaken documentary feature we produced today. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great weekend.